Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis Clap and current hands. affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to yeah. 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. You're here today with myself, Ruby, with Ayan with George and Lauren. Good morning. And how's everyone doing in this beautiful um uh, in this beautiful morning? How's everyone going? Good. Getting excited about holidays. Yeah, I know. It's getting close to that time of year, hey. I was saying that to um to my partner the other day. It's nearly nearly holiday time and I yeah. can't wait. And look at us. <laughs> <laughs> and we all survived the storm as well. I know the big, the big Melbourne storm. Oh it my was, god! Is that still I, I think that the, perhaps the drizzle we'll see today is part of the Melbourne storm. Who knows? <laughs> you know, it was it, it was such a. Um, uh, I was uh, on Twitter. I was saying how um, the bureau has to take an L for getting us all hyped up, but I'm, I'm glad we're all safe. Yeah. Imagine um, they didn't, and something terrible happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. You're I think right. yeah. It's a. It's always better to be on on the side of caution, I guess. Yeah. Yes. Um. Anyway, so um, you're gonna hear now um five poems by Sasha Rose, who's a friend of mine, and she actually just finished her honors in creative writing. Um. Ooh, la, la. Yeah, and she she writes some amazing stuff, and this is actually a segment that we want to start here on three CR. Um, Tuesday breakfast. We want to um, showcase young Australian female and gender non-binary writers and poets who who read out their own work in their own words. Um, so Sasha's poems are called. Um, there are five of them, and they're all quite short, and they're just broken up. But it's called "Kissing on the Floor," "Driving Down into Lismore," "Suburban Lot," "On the Side of the Road," and "Dried Frangipani." Kissing on the floor in the living room on the short loop carpet, using lemon bottle brush from the south coast to comb your hair, taking turns stirring dial and undressing each other. You pose naked so she can draw you with coloured textures and charcoal. Afterwards, you get one of the drawings made into a t-shirt. Next to your bed, you have a crystal that was given to your ex-boyfriend as payment for structural advice. She says it's good that it was a gift because you're not meant to exchange money for crystals. It's bad energy, they say. 100% 100% pure linen bedsheets that your second lover bought for you become dusty with stray hairs and you open the bedroom window to air each other out. Driving down into Lismore, a terracotta arcade town in Queenslanders. Stapled signs onto telephone poles next to the river that is wide and brown mark the height of the 1974 floods and Saturday morning racing. 
Grass track as you come into town. You used to dress more sexy, zips in all the right places, holding paper slips of horses you picked, lychees from a farm, pulling fruit from the twigs, and the car fills with ants, cloudy flesh, juice dripping, thighs spread flat against the seat, soft hairs pointing in different directions, panels of sunlight angle into the car, leaning back, collarbone sticky. <laughs> Suburban lot, a silver birch in the corner of the backyard, hanging over the fence into the car park of a reception centre that is playing 80s rock, Midnight Oil. Drinking tea and smoking cigarettes over phone screens on the back veranda, watching short videos of an artist sticking her fingers into fruit like they are body parts. In the garden, sage leaves like lizard tongues, and she taught you to eat kumquats with the skin on because they are sweeter that way. On the ground, grass patchy in soil, nighttime breath. Knee bent out, propped up against the flower pot, skin pounding into the soft earth, becoming wetter as the dew point nears. On the side of the road, you collect mangoes, sticky, bursting in yellow. Under the canopy, it smells like compost. You sift through the mushy fruit while the car is still running and find some that are okay. In a cul-de-sac, you pull over and make umba or something like it. There is a man camping there. He comes to where you were sitting, on the grass by the car by the portable gas stove. He tells you about the time he killed a crocodile. He was 16 and with friends. They had guns and long metal rods with hooks on the end, used for carrying a dead body. He tells you he shot the crocodile, and that night he cried and cried. He also tells you it's unlikely that a ranger will come, so you decide to sleep there, and in the back of the car, from this angle, your body looks like a golf course, soft and undulating and expansive. Dried frangipani at your feet, wilted from Townsville, and you felt like a quintessential Queensland girl. Near Hewenden, the road is long and straight. The ground is yellow. Dust rises and hangs in the thick air. There is an oncoming fleet, police cars and construction utes flashing orange lights in the middle of the afternoon. You have to pull over wide of the shoulder and wait. In the distance, big mining equipment is being transported. It takes up the whole road. You lean over the central console and touch each other, tongues wet and rasping. Fifteen minutes and the machinery is passing now. You open the passenger door, sweat drop and still waiting. You pull your hair into a high pony and unstick cotton from your skin and try to find a breeze. Now you live in different cities and you post each other sex toys and fruit roll-ups, old pieces of clothing you promised to share. That was Sasha Rose um, reading five poems um, and now I think we're going to go to a CSA. On this um, whole conversation of uh, recognition you know, the mm. recognition debate. Uh, I'm a broadcast journalist. I'm finding it very difficult to understand the complex issues surrounding the very issue that everyone's talking about. It's, it's not an easy issue. And uh, uh, everybody's got a different opinion. Mm. You know, there's different working groups. It, it, it's hard to keep up. So, look, For what um, it is, four little sentences that recognise mm. pretty much about it. It's so watered down and... It's nothing. It's a selling yourself out a few mm. sentences, really. You know, the, we, we recognise mm. in society there has to be doctors, there has to be counsellors, there has mm. to be police. That's yeah. just the reality of the numbers in the world these days. We need mm. all that. Mm. And I know we do need people to inform this government, but, look, we can sit there and rubbish these people who are 
you know, are letting themselves be accessible to the government. How do do we inject, without wanting to be formally tied up in these roles, how do we inject our opinion and make sure they're representing our opinion when we have no trust and faith in it? If they're calling themselves experts, how how do we rebel against that? Aboriginal people have always been inclusive. So I don't understand how these 40 people, admittedly very knowledgeable, articulate, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but how I would never, ever entertain the thought of making decisions on behalf of the Brapawillong people of Gunai Kurnai, because mm. I'm not of that clan. I would never entertain that. If I was asked by the Mutty Mutty people or the Waddy Waddy people, could you go there and represent us, I'd go. Mm. But I haven't been asked. And that, that, therefore, the people that are up there are self. I don't want to. I don't want to try and know their thought process, but they're self-proclaiming themselves, and that's that's the hypocrisy and the disrespect that they're having for all the other five hundred nations of people. Don't and it seems a bit imbalanced when you're largely from a public service background. You're, mm. you know, you've you've been appointed by public service government departments to play certain roles. Why can't we find a position where there's one person who's sitting in here now and Dame Phyllis Frost Centre, or you know, one person who represents prisons to to, mm. to get them onto those panels? We don't have any of the first voice. We have secondary, third, little feedback mm. voices. People might listen to this program and go and represent your point of view, but it's just not the same. It's not lived. Yeah, mm. and what I'm hearing here is that we're still having people who think that they can speak on behalf of blackfellas. The people who are up there at the moment are probably in agree in agreeance with this recognised movement. They're there to sort out the yes part of the constitutional change. Mm. What about the people who don't agree? Are they allowed to in on this on this on this meeting? No, they're not. Mm. And, um, and where is their voice you know, being where, heard? Where, yeah. Where's Where's the Jenny Munros and the and the Michael Andersons and the, Gary and the Gary Foley's and the, and the Lyle Munro's and the, the people who aren't in agreement with any part of this, this ideology or this constitution. And you were just listening to a recorded audio from NAIDOC Week 2015. It was an audio at the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre at Barwon and a Port Phillip. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. You're listening to Tuesday Morning Breakfast. With us in the studio today, we're very excited. We have some people that have come in from Chalk Circle. So we've got Michelle Noon, who is a criminologist and co-founder of Chalk Circle, and Ellie Toomey, who's been project managing Chalk Circle's new campaign by young people for young people as part of Victorians Against Violence. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. It's nice Thanks. to be here. <laughs> yeah. So can you tell us a bit just briefly about what Ch- Chalk Circle is and what you do there? 
Sure. So Chalk Circle is an independent organisation. It's a not-for-profit that works to create conversations around gender literacy that empower the next generation. So it's an organisation mainly run by young people for young people. I'm, I'm not a young person. Thanks for noticing. Uh, so, yeah, but it's it's something that we founded about three or four years ago now with some support from the US consulate of all places. And we ran some major events in Melbourne and Darwin and we mainly run events for young people. And also now we have programs and campaigns and it's all around having conversations about gender equality, gender stereotypes and what that means for us all. Wow, it sounds so cool. I only just found out about it a few weeks ago and it just seemed like an incredible idea to have that sort of education in schools. Yeah, and, and certainly more broadly as well. So now we're working with adults as well because they're really holding these conversations with young people. So we do work with parents and teachers and the broader community too. Wow, and so you mentioned gender literacy. Mm. What does that mean? Can you explain that? Well, do you want the story behind the term? Yeah, it's a, it's a really cool term. I like it. Oh, yeah, good. Yeah, we, we, what happened was we were sort of coming up with ideas as a group about what we wanted to do. And it was very clear that we had a, a very clear feminist agenda. Uh, but nobody in this, this group of young people really liked that word. And I guess it's like an not maybe an old school feminist, but a slightly older school feminist. That was interesting and that was a little concerning but that you know feminism at that time had a really big branding issue so we thought well how about we just like call it something else for the time being and then we'll come back to the term so we came up with this idea of gender literacy which piggybacked off something called racial literacy that was really fashionable at that time and um about two weeks later we got back together and everyone had become enamored with this term and really just it just took off like people were like gender literacy is what we want to do and i said well how's gender literacy different to feminism are we really just sort of saying the same thing and what we got to was that maybe not you know feminism and where we got stuck in a lot of our conversations is that it it gives you ideas about what you can and should do and we often would become um a bit stuck on these diversities of like well I'm the sort of feminist who likes to wear lipstick and that's how I feel empowered and I'm the sort of feminist that refuses because that's how I feel empowered and what we got to was that there's so many more steps before you start making those decisions about how you enact your feminism and that's really about understanding that gender's like a thing it's like an actual real thing (laughs) that exists and it's really important that we're able to see it and create gender lenses that these gender roles that we have give us expectations for ourselves and others and that that really dictates outcomes for for lots and lots of people in lots and lots of ways. So that's where the term came from and then it just grew from there and now it's amazing because we hear our stakeholders using it. Um, Wow. Yeah, we hear other people in other parts of the world using it. I don't think we sort of came up with it uniquely. I think it's probably like the telescope, um, you know, but certainly it's been really exciting. So it sounds more about sort of visibility and awareness of gender as opposed to like a politicised, you know, ideology or something. Yeah, absolutely. And it was off this realisation too that a lot of young people were saying they had had these penny dropping moments and they wanted to inspire those in other people where one day something happened or it was an accumulation of things where all this stuff came together and they started to go, oh my goodness, like who I am in my body influences how people treat me and influences how I treat myself and how other I treat other people. And that lens was a really um, clear idea. That's something that we wanted to promote with others. Yes. And so in terms of how you approach this sort of stuff in, in the program, what importance does talking and having conversations have? Um, I think that, I mean, coming from my perspective, 
being like a high school student not long ago, I found that I definitely experienced like I had an idea of what feminism was and and that I felt like I was treated differently based on my gender. Um, but I didn't know how to talk about it, I guess, or talk about it with other people. And so being in classrooms, so I'm a facilitator as well for our programs, being in classrooms and actually talking to young people about these things and, and going through what, what all these words mean that we use to describe the impact of gender and what is gender socialization, all of those steps, I guess, um, is just so inspiring and so exciting because it's what I would have loved to have had to have had so Mm. yeah I think that's the important part about creating those conversations yeah I can really relate to that like feeling that there was something lacking in in school education yeah definitely how do you find being in the classroom with the kids do you feel like they know a lot more than you might assume at the get-go yeah I think things already since I was in high school have changed like this is a conversation that's happening in the media a lot more and around young people a lot more so they're they're aware that there's something going on definitely and they're you know able to speak about it incredibly and eloquently um I think that there's just a few a few gaps that when you're getting all this sort of news and media coverage and stuff like that um around what what's the basis what's the foundations and so being in the classroom and actually going through that and getting the feedback from students is really incredible yeah yeah and the ideas that they have and the stuff that they talk about is like just so inspiring yeah yeah and it sounds like if they have words to put to some of their experiences that might be quite then empowering it, it all them. comes out and it's really, yeah. yeah exactly what's also been interesting about this program is that it's based on you know to give it boring program terms like a modulized format but mm. the, the best international evidence that we could find uh, and we've actually tried it as well with lots and lots of adults. So we took it to an anaesthetist conference of doctors, mm-hmm. and it was amazing because we had we've sort of we, we thought we'd enhance it a little and include all this like highfalutin, <laughs> highfalutin doctory stuff. We had a doctor as well to present who's who's one of our team who's amazing, and um and we went in and we thought they're going to love these like charts and graphs and stuff. And they were so amazing because they love the stuff that young people love. Really? And it's such an important lesson, I think, about, um, you know, who we work to, how we work. Like, simple stuff makes sense for all of us. Mm. And it's been really incredible to see that, particularly now doing more work with teachers and elders, that the stuff that they gravitate towards are the things that students love, like talking about Instagram and putting gender lenses upon those. And they love talking about Bieber, you know, yeah. and, and like gender lenses to Bieber. So it's it's been a really interesting process. Yeah. Because doctors are still human at the end of the day. They still like, um, yeah, uh, are interested in pop culture and so on. And I guess Absolutely. such a, um, uh, such a, I guess, interesting change from what it is that they do. And, you know, they need that. Well, and they, they see gender so much and it's really like a big part of their world. You know, they look mm. at charts every day where they've got like the what what males need and what females need. And that's one of the first things they do as an anaesthetist before they do any procedures. Mm, yeah. So it's just yeah. fascinating to think about. It can only enhance their, I guess, work practice, definitely. Yeah, that's right. So uh, let's talk about some of the potential issues with the with talking about gender. On your website, you mentioned that it can be a difficult conversation to have. Why do you think that's the case? Why do you think that sometimes it can be challenging to engage in conversations about gender and sexuality? Oh, there's so many reasons. Mm. And, I mean, the, and there's lots of evidence for why it's so difficult. But what we've found in our experiences and looking at the evidence base is that it's 
because, you know, this is so core to our identity. And before we had that penny dropping moment about, you know, what gender is and these gender lenses, we've actually made all these decisions Mm. about gender that we've put on ourselves and other people that we've been um, bystanders to, our own decisions. And that's really confronting. And certainly in my work, so I work as a criminologist and I do lots of work with the community and, you know, see the outcomes of some of this gender stuff in all kinds of ways. So particularly working with mental health concerns, working in prison environments, um, you know, the ways that people enact their gender has really clear outcomes for them. And when you learn that's happened Mm. without really, you've had so much say, but you've really had no say at all. That's a moment. And one of the things that we've done through our programming is we've been creating this sort of modulized approach is we create a lot of space for supporting people's feelings around that mm-hmm. and accepting that sometimes that is going to, you know, we're going to have curiosity, we're going to have um, sadness, we're going to have fear about that, we're also probably going to have a bit of anger about that. And those things are all part of change. And what we do is support our facilitation team to sort of work with that and to give that space mm-hmm. because I think a lot of the training we get sometimes in our environments around gender and mm-hmm. feminism is to kind of jump on that and be like no no, no like don't be angry like this is the reality of the world yeah. like you don't have a right to get upset like you need to just deal with it but actually giving that some air mm. does something powerful and it get, allows people to get on the train with you mm-hmm. yeah that's what we've is that right Ellie? Mm-hmm. is that your feeling yeah, completely. About yeah. Mm-hmm. and I guess it's a form of tone policing as well when people are more concerned about your delivery as opposed to your message so yeah you know I mean anger is a anger is important if you harness it mm-hmm. in uh, like a productive outlet yeah. uh, for a productive outlet sorry so yeah no I'm all about I'm all about yeah using your voice and and, and and just being true to your emotions, you know. Um, so I That's agree. Right, yeah. <laughs> and anger is an interesting emotion because, yeah. you know, it has this real productivity, which is it helps you create boundaries. Yes. And, you know, gender is a boundary. Like, so it's no surprise in a way that the two things come together, I think. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as part of that process to when we see change in people. Mm. Mm. So it seems like rather than imposing, you know, this is what the situation is, deal with it. It's sort of more like helping people explore how they feel and where they sit. Yeah, and then importantly on that journey, being clear about creating space to do planning. So one of the things too that we're really clear about is we're not going to provide people with things to do, which is really difficult because mm. as you know, an organisation, we're supposed to give everyone a call to action, stuff to do, and mm. everybody begs us, you know, what do we do? What do we do? <laughs> and Which is totally reasonable. Yeah. But what we've seen in our practice is that, you know, it looks different for all of us and we all live in these different worlds and different spaces and my solution is not going to be someone else's solution because I've got different privileges that other people can't access and I have other disadvantages that other people aren't aware of. So what we try and do is create a space where people can come up with ideas that are going to work for them in their bodies and their communities. Mm -hmm. Mm. And so do you discuss... uh, Various gender identities, do you talk about being trans and non-binary in the program? Yeah, I mean, so we do, uh, we we sit in in a couple of different sectors. So one is the prevention of violence against women sector, the family violence sector. The other is sort of health promotion and mental health. And then, of course, the LGBTIQ community sector. And it's a really interesting conversation, particularly right now. And, you know, we've talked about brand a bit, and I think we have to be a little bit careful talking about feminism as a brand, Mm -hmm. but we also work with the community in a public health sense. Brand's a big thing. And right now we've seen 
this year very interesting conversation about um, safe schools, about the Yes campaign, about gender and what that means, about violence. And I think as a sector and sectors, we're still really thrashing out what that all means together. And it's it's a challenge. And where we default back to, and I think it works to a degree, is this idea that if we can work with people's individual identities, then that's the, the most empowering thing that we can do. Uh, and certainly we have lots of engagement from the LGBTI community and, and trans kids in our programs. And we're now working on a new set of policies and we're going to do more engagement to really start mm. to, you know, get that as, as good as we can. That's really mm. bad grammar, I know, but as, you know, do as, as best as we can. So at this point, is it is it is it because of the, the controversy regarding safe schools that it's harder to maybe discuss I th- trans I th- identity in yeah, the program? It's, it's interesting because a lot of the, the gender programming uh, in terms of respectful relationships, for example, really sits across a binary. So, and then, um, but when we talk about gender, you know, and what we really hear from our young audience is that they're really clear and very sophisticated in their understanding that that is, that's a position to have, that gender's a binary. Mm. So a lot of our work currently in sort of the background is trying to figure out what that means for then going into classrooms and talking in this really defined way and working with adults as well about boys and girls when that's just not the reality of you know, the, the world that we live in. Not only the world we live in, just how things actually are. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting. The next six months yeah. is going to be a really exciting time for us as yeah. we thrash this out. Yeah. Mm. It definitely sounds like a difficult and controversial sort of thing in and of itself and then to mm. try and bring in, you know, every everything is, is going to be hard. Um, let's talk about the 16 Days of Activism. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about um, what that is and what your campaign for that is? So basically the 16 days of activism is time set to raise awareness and create action around the prevention of gender-based violence in a lot of different spaces. So what our organisation is doing, what Chalk Circle is doing, is our Chalk About It campaign. So what we're doing is we're creating conversations with a bunch of really amazing and inspirational women Uh, We're filming, so we're interviewing them, filming them, and then posting them on our social media and our website. What's the hashtag again, sorry? Chalk about it. Yeah. So in doing that, sort of the idea behind that is obviously, you know, our mission as an organisation is around creating conversations. Mm. So by actually going out there and doing that with, you know, really inspirational and incredible women like Ella Hooper from Killing Heidi, she's an independent Mm. singer-songwriter, uh, Poling Yao from MasterChef and Pro's Kitchen. <laughs> uh, Francis Cannon, who's an artist who's really around like body positivity. There's just a few of the people we've interviewed. Um, so by creating those conversations with them and posting them online, we're sort of giving, I guess, an example and an encouragement to young people to go and have those conversations themselves yeah. and showing that those conversations are different for everyone based on their experiences um, and alongside that, because obviously seeing conversations and, and hearing conversations is really important when you're forming your own, but we're also releasing different conversation starters and explanations. So like, what's the deal with gender socialization? What's the deal with 
gender-based violence. What is it? Why does it happen? What are its drivers? Mm. What is intersectionality and how does that impact gender-based violence? So, yeah, we've been releasing those videos over the 16 days. We're on day 11, so we've got a few more to come out. But, yeah, you can check them out on our Facebook page. Yeah, definitely. And we'll share, like, your Facebook page and Twitter page. And I think Lauren is tweeting now as well. Hopefully using the (laughs) hashtag talk about it. (laughs) So, yeah, definitely get the um, message across. Thank you so much. It's so cool. Yeah, I I love the approach just with everything that that you're doing, being around having conversations and just asking questions. Mm. I think it's a really empowering thing for people that are just sort of teetering on, you know, whether or not they want to engage with these things. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really cool to see yeah. the work that you do. Yeah, and I think it's really important. Like, there's a fear, I think, in young people, and I felt it myself around, you know, if we, if you make a mistake having these conversations, mm. you know, then it's not worth it. And so you, I guess there's sort of a fear of speaking up or yeah. anything. But by I found that by having these conversations myself and mm. talking to young people about them, um, it's important to create an open space yes. and a safe space and if you don't talk about it, exactly, nothing's going to happen. Absolutely, mm. having respectful, respectful conversations is is amazing, mm. and you you don't know if you don't ask. So exactly, I think that's so important. Yes, mm. I'm so glad you said that because we have a way um, in the anti-racist community. We have a way of disposing people when they say the wrong thing, when they ask the wrong question. So yeah, I'm glad that you're giving that space for people to learn and learn mm. and grow. So yes, yeah, thank, thank you, you for that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and... Well, I want one more question, actually. Yeah, sure. Um, how do schools actually get involved in the program? Do they have to individually seek you out, or is it sort of... So how does it work? On a, on a pretty much weekly basis, we communicate with schools through a newsletter that we have, and what we do there is we... Uh, send schools the best resources that we can find. There's so much great stuff happening mm. in Victoria. Oh, my God. Oh, it's just incredible. So my we, calendar is full. Yeah. I don't even understand. <laughs> That's right. And and all this amazing, you know, the, like written material stuff for the classroom. So we get that out as much as we can because what we know as well is that whole school approaches work best. This doesn't happen just with something that we can do it has to happen across a whole community so we're constantly having that conversation and then on occasion you know they don't need to bring in like the oh, I don't know with the heavy hitters but like a bit of a bit of reinforcement and that might be where we then go in and run sessions specifically and they just need to contact us so our website is www.chalkcircle.org and we've got details on there about how to find us and and book us in and also we're there to support just those conversations so we're always on the phone to schools having conversations about the tricky things awesome yeah I hope my dad's listening because I reckon that would be great for his school <laughs> oh, perfect <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us in the studio today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Really appreciate it. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now.
Join us to mark 100 years since the serenading of Adela Pankhurst, imprisoned at Pentridge for her anti-war activities. Serenading Adela, a street opera, recreates the summer night when hundreds of supporters sang socialist songs and cooeyed over the prison walls. Come along to Pentridge on Sunday the 7th of January or catch our December preview. It's all free. For details, search Serenading Adela or email serenadingadela at gmail.com. A 3CR supporter. Chronically Chilled, a program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm starting December 6th. Sometimes when you need help most, it can be really hard to speak up. If you need things like food, a place to stay or counselling support, There's no shame when you ask Izzy. Askizzy.org.au is a website that helps you find what you need now and nearby. It's made for mobile and all searches are anonymous. Plus, there are no data fees if you're on the Telstra network. No shame, just ask Izzy. That's askizzy.org.au. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. And now we're going to hear a track from the incredible Dada Ono, a Melbourne-based band uh, with a friend of mine at the helm. Enjoy. This track is called Jasmine. Because I've learned that when I get to that... You're listening to Tuesday Morning Breakfast with myself, George, Ruby, Lauren and Diane. So we're going to launch into some community announcements now. I've got a couple um, regarding refugee activism. Yes, yes. What's Very been important. Tell so us, the first one is uh, a Human Rights Day rally. That's this Sunday at 2pm, the 10th of December at the State Library pretty important one to get to if you if you're free on that day mm-hmm. another one that looks really good is called paint the town refugee so you can huh. join the refugee action collective this friday for a working bee to cover the streets of melbourne in posters stickers chalk stencils banners leaflets and more with the welcome refugees and bring them here message and advertisements for the human rights day rally so they'll have materials but you can bring your own stuff as well and it's a great chance to meet fellow activists. I think it's a really good idea for a peaceful protest as well, just a, a really good way to get the message out there. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I guess, like, people have been protesting peacefully the last few weeks, but it seems like there's a bit of 
um, police frustration happening. So hopefully mm. they can stay peaceful this weekend. Yeah, I was at the one on on Friday, mm. and it's just the there's just such a presence that like mm. you're just it, it was you know everyone's just walking you know yeah. chanting and then there's the police on horses and yeah Celeste Little you. is writing about that a lot and just that the aggression by just standing there almost they're not necessarily doing anything but that you know that they're around and mm. yeah, yeah it's a bit of an unsettling mm. yeah unsettling feeling and the other refugee related event this week is uh, a Springvale vigil so that's to support and stand in solidarity with the refugees on Manus and it's organised by the National Union of Workers and that's on this Thursday, the 7th of December at 6.30. And lastly, I've got uh, another protest, which is um, the Stopadani protest on, on the 6th of December. Um, so 26 major international banks, including all of the big four Australian banks, have ruled out lending to this project um, but Adani has now turned to the China Machinery Engineering Corporation as a potential partner. So that's what that process is about on um, the 6th of December, Wednesday at 12pm at the Bank of China in Melbourne, CBD. Um, and just for for some more community announcements, so um, there's a in, now in its fifth year, the Koori Art Show is the state's largest exhibition showcasing the talents of Victoria's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists. Um, so it's going to be presented by the Koori Heritage Trust with support from Creative Victoria. Um, the show is an open-entry, non-acquisitive award exhibition that presents the work of emerging to senior Koori and Victorian-based Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Um, so the exhibition launch and announcement of prizes is going to be this Saturday, December 9th from 2 till 4pm um, at Level 3 at the Yarra Building in Federation Square. Um, so you can RSVP to that by um, emailing rsvp at curryheritagetrust.com or you can contact them on 0386626300. Um, and also the exhibition dates for that are from the 9th of December until the 25th of February. Um, also, so there's going to be a queer identities resistance and assimilation panel discussion. So that's going to be hosted by Bus Projects Systems, um, and it's part of their solidarity series. So Bus Projects is an it's an artist-run organisation that's dedicated to supporting critical, conceptual, and interdisciplinary practices of Australian artists. Um, and within this panel discussion, they're going to be examining queer identities in relation to positions of resistance and advocacy. Um, and this is actually developed in response to the recent marriage equality vote and in, 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 in anticipation of achieving marriage equality, this panel will discuss issues that have come to the fore during this volatile political movement. Um, so it's going to be chaired by Drew Pettifer and it's featuring Alex Cuff, Xanth, Dobby and um, I am not going to pronounce this person's name correctly, so I will put all of those details up on our Facebook page. Um and that is this Wednesday, December 6th from 6 till 8 p.m. And you can RSVP at info at busprojects.org.au. That looks really cool, that event. Yeah, I think it's going to be great. I'm definitely going to head there. Guatemala, I'm Black Betty, and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore Black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. 
and we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2. And you're back listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. And now we're going to go to an interview that Yvette Keane of 3CR's In Your Face did with Guardian columnist, activist, feminist commentator and writer Van Badham about the hashtag MeToo social media movement, the hashtag Weinstein effect, sexism and misogyny in the workplace and how women can push against the typical patriarchal trajectory and the brutal economics of inequality. And just a content warning for this one, the interview contains descriptions of sexual assault, rape, sexual harassment, torture and the use of guns that may be distressing to some listeners. If the content raises any questions or causes distress to you, please call Lifeline on 13 1114 or Rape and Domestic Violence Services Australia on 1-800-211-028. I'm joined now by writer activist Theodore Maker and The Guardian columnist Van Badham to discuss the Me Too social media campaign which followed the sexual abuse accusations against producer Harvey Weinstein. So welcome, Van. Oh, hi. hi. Thanks for having me. <laughs> okay, so since October 15, women across the world have been writing Me Too on social media to raise awareness of sexual assault and harassment. And what the campaign has revealed so far is how sexual assault and sexual harassment is part of just about every woman's experience. Van, you wrote of your experience of Me Too and how you found it both liberating and annihilating. Could you tell listeners what, uh, more about what you meant by that? When I was a very young woman and was living overseas, I found myself in an extremely vulnerable situation where I was working on a group project. Everybody involved was very young. We were all very ambitious. And there was an extremely powerful man who crossed our path, who identified me at the time, being very young, very inexperienced, part of a a group of others who were all men, by the way, young men. He was in a position to exert power and influence over me as a young person and uh, recruited my participation in his life in a way that the Harvey Weinstein scenarios that have been communicated by the likes of Daryl Hannah and Rose McGowan and Annabelle Mm -hmm. Oskiora, I found myself in a very similar situation. It's a terrible thing for me to be obliged to remember and I think the thing is that so many women are put through experiences like that where they are made to feel powerless, where they are coerced into situations that they'd rather not be in, where they feel like they have no resources to escape. In my case, this man was so powerful that this project that involved so many people, I felt that my behaviour threatened others if I didn't sort of go along with what was intimated to me was necessary. And I think with the the revelations around Weinstein, a lot of women are revisiting and reliving things that they've suppressed, that they try not to think about. Situations where their own powerlessness was exacerbated, where they felt that sense of the differential that goes between men and women, older men and younger women, uh, powerful, well-resourced men and young women who have 
have little money or assets. That's why there's been such an outpouring of rage in the wake of the Weinstein revelations. The Me Too campaign is not the first of its kind. There have been similar ones. Um, so Alyssa Milano, I think, ignited this campaign on Twitter in October. Tarana Burke first created Me Too 10 years ago. But there's been others like You OK, Sis, and Been Raped, Never Reported. Why do you think that Me Too has been so successful so far? What is successful? I mean, successful is that there are women who feel that they can talk about the things that have happened to them. That's great. And obviously, I've participated in that and I feel comfortable doing so in the way that I haven't previously felt comfortable talking about what happened to me. Because, I mean, the experience of that kind of sexual exploitation or abuse or sexual violence is shameful. Like, the whole tactic of a rapist is to imbue a victim with shame. And I think the thing is that, you know, there's an enormous power that just comes from a collective realisation of shared experience, that there are just so many women that this has happened to. And the idea that there is a strength in numbers, that I've described it as an act of mass collective de-shaming. Yeah. Because that sort of personalised, individualised, individuated sense of personal failure or, or personal moral collapse or anything else that your predator, perpetrator, rapist has convinced you is your fault. The moment that you start seeing what's happened to you as syndromatic as opposed to some kind of individual moral failing, that is really quite liberating. And that in itself is worth doing. Like, to talk about what happened to me and be part of a community of women who are sharing those experiences is to be liberated from that shame. And I'm never, ever going to undermine the power of that. We live in a patriarchal society where wealth and power and resources and structural advantage is massively disproportionately concentrated in communities of white heterosexual men. And that power differential until it is equalised and readdressed we're going to have a situation where women do continue to find themselves vulnerable in these kind of situations. Because what we know about the history of all hitherto existing society is that a ruling class does not give up its power easily. And also a ruling class protects itself against uh, attempts by others to hold it to account and to bring it into line. So something like Me Too helping society understand that sexual assault and sexual harassment is not actually about sex and it's actually about power? I think that's helping enormously. I mean, I was reading articles today of people going, oh, but, you know, it is about sex. And it's like, no, actually, it really isn't. That's no. not what's going on at all. And reading some of the testimonies of people like Daryl Hannah, in particular Annabella Sciorra, she talks about the night that she alleges Harvey Weinstein raped her. According to Annabella Sciorra, she submitted to a forced penetration against her will and then Harvey Weinstein ejaculated on the nightgown that she was wearing. And it's just such a detail of, like, humiliation and, like, territorial marking, you know, to remind her that she's just an object for his control. I mean, that's not about sex and that's not about being sexy. That's about the theatrics of domination and Weinstein revealing in that. And there are a lot of stories like that around these particular events. And it, it's pretty obvious that, again, there are allegations that Harvey Weinstein employed ex-Mossad agents from a private investigation firm to follow and befriend and stalk and monitor um, the women he was concerned would bring allegations against him. 
Um, it was reported in the New Yorker yesterday in another article by Ronan Farrow that Rose McGowan had been targeted by agents who were under the employ of lawyers allegedly employed by Harvey Weinstein to monitor whether she was going to talk to the media or not. I mean, it is just extraordinary to consider that. And the important thing is to understand why that exists and why there are men who do this to women. And overwhelmingly, like, this is... These are misogynists with privilege. Misogynists with privilege can afford to pay private investigators who used to work for Mossad to stalk and monitor women who can afford to control your hotel booking and your flight and can exert... Their, their power to materially disrupt your life in those kind of ways. Misogynists who don't have the privilege of wealth and power do it in other ways, by simple stalking, by cyber stalking, by threats, violence, text messages and intimidation. Um, this week, in the wake of the horrible slaughter in Texas, they discovered that the perpetrator of that violence had a history of violence against women and uh, the mother of one of his former partners was actually the target of a series of abusive messages before the killing spree took place. And, of course, she was expected to be in that church that he shot up. There was an article in Business Insider today that crunched through some statistics that said of these sort of mass murder events that have happened in the West over the past 10 years, nine out of 10 of them, they've been able to find a history of misogynistic violence in the perpetrator. Right. Another thing that I'm finding coming up again again, it's the culture of victim blaming, I suppose. People not understanding why a woman wouldn't run, you know, physically speaking when it was safe or possible to do so or why she complied. You know, not understanding the brutal economics of inequality and, and, and how that would drive the decisions women are forced to make. That's a really good way of describing it is the brutal economics of inequality. There are a lot of women who have been obliged to endure sexual harassment in the workplace because their income is based on on that workplace and to run, to walk away from that, mm. will leave them destitute. Women who are in codependent economic relationships with partners, you have to remember that there is only one suburb in all of Sydney and all of Melbourne combined where rent is low enough for the average female worker to afford to live independently. There are no inner city suburbs left where women can live independently anymore mm. because we don't earn enough money because of the structural economic disadvantage and the fact that women have less property, own less property, inherit less property, all of these things. You know, the, the phenomenon of elder abuse in our community is absolutely rife and I don't think it's any coincidence that, you know, the most rapid-growing um, homeless population in Australia is older women, women who retire uh, with less superannuation because they've been out of the workforce, because they're obliged into caring roles. We know that women earn less money because of all kinds of structural biases. It's these very real structural inequalities that create situations that make women vulnerable to exploitation. And people who don't get that, I envy them. I would love to be so privileged that I couldn't imagine what it'd be like. I'd love to think that I didn't have the imagination to understand the things that have happened to me personally. I'd love to have that that arrogant privilege of insulation against the reality of the economics of desperation. Unfortunately, um, especially when I was a younger woman with no assets, no power, no social standing, I didn't have those opportunities. I wish I did. So you spoke about your feelings of rage. Absolutely. I want to talk about how women's anger for, you know, is, is often discredited, despite anger being a justified response to the world that women live in. You know, calling us crazy, divisive, misandrous, or the classic, hysterical. I get why, that all the time. Yeah, why aren't we allowed to be angry? 
I mean, we're not allowed to be angry because that's a system of cultural policing mm -hmm. that's about protecting a particular kind of wealthy male privilege. If you discredit from an onset position anyone who critiques the way that power is exercised by the powerful, well, that actually reinforces your power because you can't get a, a witness on the stand. And this is the thing, like, people participate in this form of delegitimising because these are the lessons that we learn through culture about our place in the hierarchy and even if it's a low place, maintaining that status uh, gives people a false sense of, of remaining safe. I did an article a few months ago uh, talking about John Laws, who's oh. just like a cretinous old gas bag, <laughs> made some kind of revolting comment about how um, he only let his female employees wear skirts to work. Basically, mm. it meant that he should spend the rest of his life in a can of ham. And people like Jessica Rowe and Ida Buttrose, who are women who I really admire, they were like, you know, he means well. And I was like, how can you possibly think that? Like, you are mm. intelligent, capable women who've been in the leadership roles. And I read this really interesting psychological study that was done about passive sexism and the way that, mm. you know, women are encouraged to make excuses for men because not only of a system of network dependency, but the idea of stepping out of line or challenging that is really destabilising and that people much prefer to remain in a low-power, disempowered position than to risk that position by challenging authority, even if that challenge could result in, like, a, a gaining of status. And it was really very depressing, but the study sort of gave me some space to forgive women who do make those kind of excuses because that's symptomatic of just how absolutely out of whack the power differentials are. Well, it's like, it's like a, a, an eternalised sexism or internalised misogyny even. But we're also forced in this culture, I think, to placate men that's protocol. And I mean, we've inherited literally thousands of years of cultural practices that tell us that that's how we should behave, that that's the secret to our social preservation. The reality is that it was still legal to rape your wife in parts of Australia until yeah. 1995. Mm -hmm. The law didn't protect women from abuse and assault. We were in an incredibly, incredibly disadvantaged position socially as well as legally, as well as economically for a long time. The inheritance of that is still with us and the idea that we should placate people you know, you've got to get along to get along, is a survival strategy. That's, you know, for many people, that's what you've got to do. And it's very hard to step out of that role and requires certain kind of resources that allow people to organise, to seize power, to create new structures. And it's very difficult. I mean, especially if you're looking at the history of the feminist movement, there are some incredible divisions in the feminist movement that come from the fact that you have feminists who have themselves come from really privileged circumstances well, understandably, they're the people who've had the, the least to lose in making a lot of the demands of the system. And, of course, it gets very complicated when you're like, if you don't understand the deprivations of my situation, how can you possibly campaign to improve them? All of these things are symptomatic of just the incredible concentration of wealth and power that patriarchy bestows on a very small percentage of men. I understand a lot of men feel that they're unfairly targeted by feminist yep. campaigning when women talk about, you know, male privilege and the patriarchy. And the reason why I use terms like male privilege and the patriarchy is specifically because they don't apply to all men. Like, the thing to remember is that 
all women are oppressed because of their gender. No men are oppressed because of theirs. Men can be oppressed by their race or their class or their sexuality or their geography or their generation or their ability status. All of these things can oppress men. But at no point in your life will your gender be the source of your oppression if you're a man. And the privilege that's dispensed so unequally, like it is concentrated in men. And that's something that men have to be aware of when they hear the discussions that we make around gender and power. That's the thing. It's such a difficult conversation to have with men. I mean, at its most basic level, I don't know, uh, patriarchy, what it hands a man is, is privilege because if he follows the rules of masculinity if he performs it he can expect to have an advantage over women well this is the thing i mean until very very recently in this society um and and i speak specifically of australian society all you had to do to wake up and be superior feel superior and have superior status over more than half the population was to be a man our legal system and our pay rates like equal pay only came to australia in the 1970s like these kind of very very recent comparatively recent events meant that you have generations of men who are still with us who were born and raised in a society that told them that they had the privilege of domination over women in every aspect of their lives and I can imagine it must be terrifying for those men to find that sort of authority they were raised with challenged by this horrible demand that um, they be considered equally on their own merits as opposed to promoted above their station merely by patriarchal traditions. And so it's not that I have sympathy for the rage of the hysterical, unreasonable men who attack me on the internet all the time. I don't have sympathy yes. for that, but I can understand the context in which it occurs. And, um, and I, I find it symptomatic, in fact, of the gains that women are making, that there are men who feel displaced by equality. Male complicity, how do we talk about that when how complicity works? Just because a man hasn't raped someone doesn't mean he's not contributing to a culture of sexism that oppresses, objectifies and harms women in an exhaustive list of ways. I believe absolutely overwhelmingly that the majority of people believe in equality in Australia. I think equality is a really Australian characteristic for all kinds of reasons. I think that the majority of Australian men don't like the idea that there should be any kind of gender imbalance. But the reality in Australia, of course, is that we have one of the most gender-segregated workforces in the world. We certainly have one of the most gender-segregated workforces in the OECD. We create masculine and feminine spaces and when you start gendering spaces and creating systems of socialisation where only one gender is present, that means that, you know, the, the way that you represent genders to one another becomes based on stereotypes and inherited traditions that are associated with either a male or female experience. The idea that we still have single-sex schools in this country I think is ridiculous for a start. The idea that, that we have workforces that are so heavily dominated by men or so heavily dominated by women is a real cause for concern because it means that something is going on socially that is driving people into performances of their gender that are based around other life choices that perhaps don't 
represent them or their interests in the way that they should. Well, that's the thing. It's, you feel so overwhelmed when we think or talk about the, the, this issue. There are ways that you can address these issues in our community. Yeah, absolutely there them. are. <laughs> I mean, and this is, I find myself getting to this discussion with people a lot. We actually live in a democracy and a democracy is a really powerful and incredible thing because a democracy means that without having to kill anybody, you can express <laughs> a point of view and win other people to your point of view and actually exert pressure over the levers of power. And anybody who tells you, oh, democracy is broken, it's not working, isn't actually an activist. Because I've seen in my own life the most incredible gains for people that have been won by dedicated groups of people forming organisations and campaigning in their interests and in the interests of other people and in the interests of the collective good. And in a democracy, a collective good argument always wins. And mm. as feminists, if what we're saying is, well, we want to live in a community without violence. We want to live in a community where everybody's family feels safe. We want to live in a community where we can rely on the structures of authority to protect everybody, not oppress everybody. We want to live in a community where everybody has the right to an education. Everybody has the right to breathe clean air. Everybody has the right to pursue their vocation. Well, that's actually a pretty compelling argument for men as well. Having the confidence in the vision as, that's articulated is actually the difference. I feel like I can exhale on that. <laughs> that was a really positive note to end the interview on. Thank you so much, Van, for being with us. Okay, no problem. Take care, darling. Thank Bye. And you were just listening to Yvette from In Your Face. Yvette was um, having a conversation with um, Guardian columnist and activist Van Batten. And now we're going to go straight into alternative news. Um, unfortunately, we're short on time, so we can't play our little cute alternative um, uh, nitty-gritty song. But just, yeah, picture that in your head. Um, okay, so the first thing um, I want to talk about quickly is the Libya slave trade. So what happened? So CNN went undercover in October to capture videos of African refugees and migrants being sold by smugglers into what can only be described as slavery. In one video, you see an African man being sold for as little as $400. It should be noted that CNN has the resources and platform to bring the issue to an international audience, but people on the ground and journalists as well as international agencies have been speaking out on the issue for some years now. So why has Libya become the hub for slavery? African refugees and migrants use Libya to enter Europe by sea. Just some context as to why, you know, why Libya. So Muammar Gaddafi, who was the ruling leader of Libya, um, he had been the ruling leader of Libya for decades. But in 2011, he was overthrown and killed by rebel forces. Since then, Libya has been labelled a failed state. This failure has led to the rise of a slave trade that preys on African refugees and migrants. Time magazine reports that in the last three years, 15,000 people made, uh, made the trek into European cities through Libya. But in the past four years, sadly, 3,000 refugees have died attempting to make this perilous journey. So... The Libyan Coast Guards. The Libyan Coast Guards. Um, what is their role in the slave trade? So, um, <clears throat> when African refugees and migrants enter Libya before setting for Europe, they are sometimes captured by the Libyan Coast Guard. The Libyan Coast Guard then sends the refugees to detention centres. 
The Coast Guard are financed by the EU and in particular Italy, who have been closing their borders to refugees. Mind you, the policing of the oceans is being advertised as a rescue mission rather than what it actually is, which is border policing. Basically, the EU is outsourcing its responsibility to the Libyan Coast Guard. So, um, and finally, what are African and European countries doing to curb the selling of human cargo? There was a summit in the Ivory Coast on 29th of November to address the slave trade. The summit was attended by leaders from African and European nations. The result of that summit? So, they have decided to evacuate thousands of migrants who are trapped in Libyan detention camps and to send them back home. There's also been talks uh, to create a task force to deal with migration um, and to also invest in jobs for young people in their homelands. So that's been happening. Um, I, I have not seen any of the videos because it's too horrific and I've seen enough um, yeah, traumatic things in my life to not need to see that. And yeah, so um, that's happening and hopefully we'll update you on the progress of that. Mm. Um, another thing that we wanted to provide our listeners with an update on is the Pine Gap Peace Pilgrims. So um, for those who haven't been following um, the news story, I highly recommend jumping on Facebook to the Pine Gap, Pine Gap Pilgrims Facebook just for a bit of a rundown. Um, essentially, it's about a U.S. Army or military base up in the very far north of Australia. And there are accusations of some pretty terrible things happening as a result of that base being up there. So um, six peace pilgrims, as they call themselves, um, con- performed acts of nonviolent civil disobedience earlier in the year and have now been found guilty of trespass. Uh, they've been fined between $1,250 and $5,000 each with convictions recorded but no custodial sentences. They were found guilty of entering the Pine Gap prohibited area and one had a photographic apparatus. Uh, make of that what you will, but that is what has happened. And lastly, traditional owners have applied for an injunction in the federal court to prevent the Native Title Tribunal from signing off on an Indigenous land use agreement before the outcome of a court challenge. Representatives of the Wangan and Jagalingu Native Title claimants are split evenly over the deal, which would relinquish Native Title rights over the area of the mine in the Galilee Basin in return for cash benefits, guaranteed jobs and business contracts. Adani requires an Indigenous land use agreement because many banks subscribe to equated principles, which means that resource projects are not supported without the consent of traditional owners. Mm. Um, And I know George said lastly, but actually, actual lastly. Oh, sorry. Uh, No, no, no. That's totally fine. I just, um, we walked in this morning to the studio and there was this newspaper sitting on the table in front of us, um, today's Herald Sun, uh, with a big photo on the front. And it just says the word mayhem. um, And it's got some pretty violent photos from the uh, protest against Milo Yiannopoulos, who spoke last night um, in in Kensington. So... um, for those of you who don't know, Milo is, um, well, he's a neo-Nazi sympathiser who has made multiple horrific comments about women, uh, racist comments, fascism. Mm. He's just... Um, Piece of work. Yes, took it out of my mouth. Um, but I think what, what we were all really taken by was the reporting on this um, on this issue. So Milo has 
not only been allowed into the country where other, for example, young, black, poor mm. rappers may not have been, but he's been welcomed, to invited to Parliament House by our parliamentarians and has been given a platform to speak on multiple main, mainstream media. Um, there's this awful photo of him with uh, Kyle and Jackie O mm. and that sort of thing. So he spoke last night at an event in Melbourne um, and some protesters showed up. I think um, the campaign against racism and fascism reports that there was mm. around two to 300 protesters that showed up, which is a great turnout. Um, and the protest happened right near the Kensington um, community housing and a lot of the residents there who are people who are impacted by the types of comments that people like Milo make actually came out and joined the protest. Mm. And there's some really beautiful photos. <laughs> Big props to all the aunties yes. who normally don't show up for protests because they've got a lot on their uh, minds and on their load. So good on you for coming mm-hmm. out. We appreciate it. And um, yeah, yeah, um, so happy to see that. But yeah, interesting to note the reporting here um, sort of changing and this is something that's really interesting, changing the terms of the debate that we're having. So it's not about what Milo has said or done and why we, why he should be protested against or why people are fighting it, yeah. but it's about how people fight. So if they can change the terms of the debate to people being thugs or violent or you know, perhaps people um, using pepper spray and that sort of thing, mm. it takes away, it really detracts from the content of why Milo is here and what he's saying and why it's so important that we fight it. And it muddies the waters. And now this debate, if, if you look at today's Herald Sun and, you know, um, you don't have to read it, I promise. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but just looking at it alone is enough to see that the way that this is all being reported about, yeah. you know, he's, he's being protected. So Yeah, and mm. just the whole um, idea that he's some sort of like freedom fighter for mm. um, free speech. And I've always felt some type of way about free speech because free, free speech in the West it's always like who is allowed that free speech, right? Um, What free speech is the right type of free speech? And it's often one that's denigrating communities who are already marginalized. And the the fact that this guy is becoming some sort of, like even in the US, this guy is like the laughing stock of the US. Mm -hmm. He used to work for that conservative magazine I forgot. Briber, and he's also been accused of making like some like really homophobic, transphobic comments. And but because he's a white man, and he's also, I think it's important to also note that he's good looking as well. Oh, well, no, I don't find him good looking. Conventionally attractive. Yeah, conventionally attractive. Thank yeah. you, because I I was digging myself a grave. Um, but yeah, so all these all these privileges that he has allows his voice to be heard. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing about free speech. It assumes that free speech is occurring in a society where everybody is completely equal, yes. which is absolutely not the case in the US here or anywhere else in the world, really. And mm. for him to come here and, as you say, be denigrating the communities that are fighting so hard in this country just to have equal rights already, mm. it's not free speech. That mm. is something else entirely. Absolutely. And just the mm. way he's been welcomed says a lot mm. about Australia. Like, he's... Other countries in the world, um, the way like he's either shunned or he's like mocked. But in Australia, he's he's being held as like this baton for yeah. red carpet rolled out right up to Parliament House. Like right, that. right, and um, yeah. So it just goes to show you that in Australia we still have a long way um, in dealing with race issues. Um, just quickly, I don't know if we have time um maybe i won't go into the article but i suggest 
um, if you have time to go on the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence website, they released a report called Reality Bites, Australia's Youth in Unemployment in the Millennial Era. And it looks about, so it looks at young people and their young people and unemployment and how they're the least like hired group, but they're the group that also needs experience, but they're not being given that experience because they're considered unexperienced. So mm. like inexperienced. It's a vicious cycle. It's a vicious yeah. cycle. And also um, we should mention that um, uh, in the article, it goes on to um, they quote some young person who, um, so she looks at the things that made it difficult for her to, um, to get um, gainful employment. And that was also not knowing how to, um, apply for jobs as well and that's a skill that you learn over time and some that's something that's not taught in schools as well like it you know doing resumes and cover letters is fine but you have to also know how to sell yourself mm-hmm. and she was looking at networking and how networking is important and the right type of networking because we all have friends we all have networks but the right type of networks that can mm-hmm. get us the jobs so go on the brotherhood of saint lawrence um, and go on their tab called Youth Employment. Um, oh, man, I forgot the name. But if you go on their website or you you can Google Reality Bites, Australia's Youth Unemployment, and it's a report that's come out. And, yeah, you can have a look into it and, yeah, um, read more about it. Um, in a few minutes, I will be talking to Habib. Habib is a... Um, a community member from the um, Rohingya community in Melbourne. Sometimes when you need help most, it can be really hard to speak up. If you need things like food, a place to stay or counselling support, there's no shame when you ask Izzy. Askizzy.org.au is a website that helps you find what you need now and nearby. It's made for mobile and all searches are anonymous. Plus, there are no data fees if you're on the Telstra network. No shame, just ask Izzy. That's A-S-K-I-Z-Z-Y dot org dot A-U. A 3CR supporter. Turkish Woman Radio Program. Everything about a woman. Every Tuesday night from... 9.30 till 10pm at 3CR 855am. Uh, hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. I've, this is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great. Really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419 8377. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on your 8.55 a.m. dial on 3CR Community Radio. In the studio, we have myself, Ayan. We also have um, George and Lauren. And Ruby had to just quickly dash off. Um, uh, so right now, we have Habib uh, on the line. Habib is the founder and spokesperson for Australian Burmese Rohingya organization based in Melbourne. He is also a member of the international Rohingya organization called Arakan Rohingya National Assembly. They're based in the UK. And Habib also co-authored the book Taboo Burmese. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Habib. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, um, so, Habib, can you tell us, um, so before we look at the crisis, can you tell us a brief history of the Rohingya people? Uh, yeah, uh, the, uh, the, actually the Arkan has been uh, the rule by Hindu's dynasty uh, up to until 9th century. So the Rohingya people are native uh, combat of Chandra people. And, and uh, because as a result of we have Arab trade in around 8th century and then we have Portuguese trade and we have uh, trade between Bengals and we have also the uh, the invasion from Bahman King and then the the Arkan King has been seek refuge in uh, Bengals and get uh, the military support from Bengal King mm. during 14th century and 1617 and then good relation with uh, Bengal uh, Sultan is Kane. And then we have again uh, the uh, the ground that uh, today in the region of uh, the Bengal. So that being uh, uh, ruled by sometimes uh, Bengal Kane and sometimes Arkanis Kane. Yeah. So it is a bit complex, uh, complex. So the people has been mixed of various stock and then that forms uh, the Rohingya people. That is how Rohingya people has been founded. So the people are, are not migrant. The people are native combat. Yeah. Yes, religions uh, religions has uh, has uh, formed after the migration from uh, the various trade from Arab and Portuguese and Bengal. Yes, and and uh, the there has been historical record that Rohingya has been long rooted uh, before British uh, came to uh, occupy the Arkan territory. Uh, and we have also that uh, the uh, the Rohan Rohingya has been the uh, came uh, according to the Arab geography record and then British traveler Ralph Fish records so that came from Rohan yeah. Roshan Raham to Recon. Mm. So uh, many uh, you will also found that many are uh, the Arkanis Kane, I mean Rakhine kingdoms. Uh, the kings has been named by Muslim name since uh, between 14th century to 17th century in the last kingdom of Mrao'u. So, mm-hmm. and, and also we have record of uh, the Rakhine, uh, uh, the king has been refused in Bangladesh for 26 years and then returned by the, the Bengal king sultan. So uh, it means like Rohingya has been like uh, well-founded. There yeah. has been historical record of the, uh, the people of yeah. Arkan. Yeah, but they seem to, yeah, they have a um, rich history, it sounds like. Um, considering their uh, rich history, um, why are they still excluded from Myanmar society? Uh, yeah, uh, there have been two contexts. Uh, today, it's seemingly that the government and the majority people has been uh, both corporately attacking Rakhine people. Mm-hmm. So we have, uh, the Rohingya has been facing attacks uh, since 1942. So 
like 1942 and 1949, they've been led by the during Rakhine uh, leadership period. And then uh, since military came to power in 1962, so there has been attacks began from 1978, again 1991, again in 2012, June, again in October 2006, and latest was from 25th August. Mm-hmm. So when you see them and then the law that the constitutionally divided uh, Rohingya people and and, and you will see Burma has been divided uh, to four, seven states and seven divisions. So entire seven division has been given and or fixed for the, uh, only Burman one race. And the other six, uh, the state, like uh, seven, uh, I mean, state has been given to six other majority ethnic groups. Mm-hmm. So since uh, the uh, Arkana state has been changed the name as a Rakhine from 1974, and then we have also the, the state name has been named as a uh, Buddhist religion state from 1974, then excluded uh, Rohingya community from uh, the constitution. Yeah. And, and, and the government has been claiming there has been threat of Muslim. They actually, like we have threat of Buddhism. If you look back to 40 years back, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, where the Buddhism uh, majority has been less than 40%, but today that reached the number of up to 89 and made up uh, 89%. So the growing uh, double number of Buddhism population. So there has been complete ongoing Bud- uh, Buddhism state and then uh, Buddhization and Bahmanization. Yeah. So the law, the law that uh, because of the, the ruler are Buddhism, they are trying to build uh, the anti-Rohingya state or anti-Muslim state. So, so that's why they introduced uh, the law, 1982 citizenship law, that excluded Rohingya community and be, uh, made to de facto stateless people. And then, uh, despite they had been uh, given and recognized uh, and, as an ethnic group and given citizenship, so yeah. th- this is the state sponsor, and the state has been uh, heading toward Buddhization. Right. So slowly, slowly, not only Rohingya Muslim, they are slowly they've been attacking now other Muslims. We have 13 to 14 other type of Muslim in Burma, so they are also facing attack as well. Yeah. If you see in 2013 and 12, the attack has been spread across uh, five other regions in central Burma as yeah. well. We have also not only Rohingya in Arkana state, we have other ethnic groups, recognized ethnic groups uh, under the military they call command. They also face a similar attack. They have been also put into concentration camp. Their right yeah. has been also taken away. So that not only target on Rohingya, they are targeting other Muslims as well. And slowly, they are also targeting other minorities like Shin, Kishin, Karan, Mon. They are they also facing attack as well. So these are kind of like facing whoever non-Buddhist community, they all have been facing uh, the attack. So Buddhist, like Muslims are, are even percentage by 4%, but second largest community in Burma. Mm. That's why they target this group. And then slowly that will be uh, extend to other group as well. Yeah. And um, because we've seen, you know, we've seen the videos of the Rohingya community, um, you know, f- uh, fleeing into um, uh, refugee camps and so on. Um, what's been the response from international agencies to the crisis? And do you think the response has been adequate? Uh, we have to say no, it is not enough uh, because uh, we have two problems facing. We have uh, the internationally supported, uh, uh, well, uh, well-known, uh, the human rights icon, Aung San Suu Kyi, has been taken power. Mm. So she, she has been actually uh, uh, using her limited power to inform international community, like defending uh, 
the, she's tied with uh, military and defending military uh, uh, brutalities. And then she she's lying situation on the ground, saying that that is not happening. And she doesn't know why the people are fleeing. And she is also blocking international uh, uh, inquiry commission mm. and then aid and food delivery on the ground. And and she is uh, actually like uh, uh, trying to say uh, like uh, become uh, rather than human icon. Uh, she become a majority representative, uh, not human icon anymore. Yeah, so as, mm. yeah, yeah. So as as we see, uh, there has been a lot of thing. Uh, the the uh, Rohingya uh, cases has been taken uh, lately up to security council, but the action has not been taken so far. And mm. and just condemning the condemn. So that been uh, the attack has been not now now more than over f- uh, five decades. So the, that condemn doesn't work. Sanction doesn't work. So mm. we have to uh, in place with uh, the practical action need to lay uh, the sanction, uh, the affirmative sanction, a strong ash, uh, sanction and action. So that that need to ease the crisis. The international community they are uh, se- seemingly very weak. They mm. cannot even uh, the I mean the guarantee for food and aid delivery. They cannot. Uh, because you see on the ground, the houses are still burning. The, has, the attack has been going on. The military is still in power. So that all of that need to be stopped. And mm. then the people are now the, the start uh, looking to flee by boat uh, to other countries because they know there has been agreement has been signed. So that the, the similar uh, like in 1991 and 78, that will be happening again. So the international community and United Nations, they cannot even ensure a safe return into Burma and the right and dignity of their, 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 their that need to be installed in Burma. So the, the, well, uh, the, the people and rehabilitation, the right, mm-hmm. all has need to be set up in line with international standards. So the United Nations are even failing to do in that chapter as well. So it is very weak as we see. Yeah, and um, because you also mentioned um, the political actions that international the international community can do, such as sanctions, um, because we're short on time, can you um, maybe give us um, an idea as to what uh, you know our listeners or just the uh, wider Australian community can do to um, highlight the um, situation with the Rohingya community? Uh, yeah, this is this crisis become global crisis, mm. international issue. So uh, we cannot just stay, uh, stay away as a saying that it is international issue. We are we are in democratic uh, the developed nation, and yeah. Australia become a, a part of Security Council member lately now. So the Australian community has to call the, the Australian government to suspend military aid like other country did. And then they have to boycott the military, uh, providing military aid and investment. We have, we have, because we have like one of the Australian company called Woodside. They have 400 million million dollar investment in Rakhine Basin where oil and uh, gas resources is. Mm. And and uh, we have to ensure temporary humanitarian aid and relief providing directly to international NGOs who are working on the ground. And we have, uh, we also need Australia support United Nations Security uh, Council uh, making decisions to take action uh, onto Burma and take uh, side with Rohingya victims, uh, not to support military government. So that means uh, then uh, the Australian government uh, has uh, really need to take up sanction and then uh, uh, the abandon uh, the providing military aid. And then we have also the uh, uh, the 
Australian National University they, that have uh, given doctor, doctorate award to Aung San Suu Kyi. So that mm. that needs to be revoked. So that is why what we given for and today what she is now. Mm. So that needs to be revoked. And we have to wipe out uh, the uh, Chinese investment and product because China has been China and Russia has been always uh, opposite uh, in Security Council making decisions. And and actually, like all Islamic nation countries, they all have to come together and boycott Chinese products. So mm. as an as an Australian government, they can do a lot of things. Uh, like uh, this case has been already forwarded for Security Council. So the last, as a result of the people and the majority support, they are jointly attacking. They don't want Rohingya existence in Burma anymore, and they deny the very existence of Rohingya. So the last re- resolution will be. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, the declare protectorate state mm-hmm. or uh, or uh, to submit uh, R2P resolution in Security Council. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that 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 will be the, the last resort that what Australia can do, and the people have yeah. to support and call Australian government to take that step yeah. forward. And that's that sounds like a good note to end on. Thank you so much for just you know making sense of what's happening with the Rohingya community because. Um, Australian media hasn't been reporting it as uh, thoroughly as it should. Um, yeah, so thank you so much, Habib, for um, spending time with Tuesday Breakfast. Okay, all right, thank you. And that was Habib um, uh, chatting to us about the Rohingya refugee crisis. Habib is the founder and spokesperson for the Australian Burmese Rohingya Organization based in Melbourne. He is also a member of the international Rohingya organization called Arakan Rohingya National Assembly. And he also co-authored the book Taboo Burmese. And I think we're, yeah, we're, we're done for time. Um, and thank you so much for spending time with Tuesday Breakfast. And we will see you next week.